Philippians 1, 1 through 11, if you haven't already turned there, and if you're turning now, let me just begin with this question or a sort of a what if. What if I were to ask you a question this morning? Uh, how can I pray for you? Because that's a question periodically that, uh, or maybe regularly, I guess, that Christians just in relationship with one another, uh, those who might sincerely pray for each other, might ask that question, how can I pray for you? And if I were to ask you that question, you might, like I do sometimes, sort of take a quick mental scan of your life uh, to rem try to remember if there's anything big or significant that somebody could pray for. If it's really big, you don't even have to be prompted, right? Because you're wearing it all the time. But sometimes we might scroll through our sort of mental index and see if there's something big or significant ask somebody to pray for. And if not, if nothing big comes to mind, we may initially have a hard time even thinking of something for which we, we actually need prayer. Because we tend to pray for the things that we most value and the things that we think we most need. And when the things we value um, are in need of... <laughs> Uh, help or supply in some way, then when two, when two of those come together, then uh, we're really sort of readily mindful of our uh, a need for prayer. But if we don't perceive our need accurately or completely, we won't pray sufficiently. If we don't, if we don't perceive our need completely or accurately, we won't pray sufficiently. And so the opening verses of Philippians 1 give us some insight into the general needs that we share as Christians. That, uh, in other words, that we, we ought to be mindful of these general needs or else our prayers are likely to be incomplete and insufficient. And it gives us not only some insight into those needs, but some guidance in how we can pray in light of those needs. And so I've titled this sermon this morning, How We Can Pray for One Another. How we can pray for one another. If I were to ask a week from now, how can I pray for you? You would know at least part of the answer to that question because I'm going to tell you this morning how we can pray for one another. So let's look at Philippians 1, uh, 1 through 11 together, and I will ask you or invite you to stand for the reading of the scriptures. Beginning in verse 1, reading out of the English Standard Version, hear the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we are thankful for your true and living word. We open it now, as always, with the expectation that you have something to say to us in it. And you know, indeed, the needs that we bring on our hearts and in our minds and our lives. You know them even as we don't know them. And you know how your word needs to challenge and minister to those needs. And so we ask, as we always do, that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant to your people for your glory. Because this is all yours, Lord. All of our worship, all of our lives are yours. Be glorified in the way you speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, uh, starting into Philippians, I wanted to begin not only in the way that the letter begins, but also with a little bit of background that would be helpful for today's message as well as um, this whole series, because we'll see that there are a few themes that run through Philippians, a couple of them that are um, evident and relevant right here in this opening passage this, this morning, but one of those is joy. So, in fact, that's one of the sort of characteristic themes of the book of Philippians. It's known that way, and one that it seems like we could benefit from meditating on some in this season. Uh, in fact, the first mention of joy shows up here in verse 3, right here in the very beginning of this passage. And the fact that that's a theme is, of this letter is particularly remarkable because Paul is writing from prison. So it's not a place where you would think joy is naturally something that you would feel or come by. Uh, you might rather want people that you could commiserate with, and yet it's laden with joy throughout. And again, uh, being that we are living through some challenging and difficult, troubling times in some ways, it ought to be instructive to us. I think that's one of the things God wants to speak to us through this particular study through Philippians. It's just how to be joyful in difficult times, and Paul was that. So that's one of the themes that shows up even this morning. The second is friendship. And that's maybe more of a, a tone than it is a theme, but it, it sort of strikes that tone even in these verses here that we just read, um, that he clearly values the friendship he enjoys with this Philippian church as a community. It says uh, there, I, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He really does have a special kind of love for the Philippian church community. Uh, now, there are probably two reasons why uh, that's particularly true, why, why he writes to them and remembers them with joy and with this deep affection. One would be because of all the circumstances surrounding the planting and growth of this church. Now, again, I, I'm, I'm sharing this to give context here um, for us to st understand who they are as a church, maybe over against all the other churches that Paul planted and ministered to, um, and, and how that will, we'll see the relevance of that as we go throughout this letter. But the, the circumstances surrounding the planting of that church, planting of that church show up in um, Acts chapter 16. So this is the beginning of the second missionary journey. In fact, we touched on this last week as we talked about the uh, relationship between Paul and Mark. You remember they had been um, 
sort of separated for a period of time. Paul and Barnabas starting out on the second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark. Paul didn't, and they had a sharp division. They end up separating and going their different ways. And Paul took Silas and went one way, ended up meeting Timothy at the very next destination, and that's how Timothy uh, joined the team. Well, the way that that, the rest, the, that chapter begins to unfold in Acts chapter 16 is that they, they try to go to some of the other cities where Paul had visited on the first missionary journey. That was part of their plan was to go deliver a letter, some encouraging news to those churches in the Gentile uh, areas, the, the region of Galatia in particular. But the, the Lord didn't allow them to go to the places they planned to go to. And they ended up down in Troas, a place you don't know where that is, and it's not so important right now. Uh, but they, he had a vision that night of a man from Macedonia calling to him, come over and preach to us. And they discerned that to be a word from the Lord. And so they went over into Macedonia to preach the gospel. They, Macedonia was never on their itinerary. It was never on their travel plans. And yet here they are, and the first city they go to in Macedonia is Philippi. And uh, it actually ends up being, for that reason, the first new unreached area that Timothy had ever been to, because he just had joined them on this, uh, on this mission team. And he's mentioned here in verse 1 as one of the senders of this letter. But, but now recall all the things, if you've, if you've read the book of Acts before, if you're with us when we uh, went through the book of Acts a couple of years ago, but Lydia and her household were converted. Paul and Silas got put in jail, you may remember. There was an earthquake, the jail shook, chains were broken. Philippian jailer was gonna kill himself, but didn't. And then he got saved and his whole family got baptized. All of that kind of stuff happened in Philippi. Um, just remarkable demonstration of the presence of God in the midst of what they were doing. And, and here's the other thing I think really to make note of and to try to get our heads and hearts around, that the Philippian church was the first fruit of the ministry that they continued in after their initial plans had, had come totally unhinged. Can, can you get a hold of that? Okay, so they had plans. They had a team to execute those plans. Before they even got out of the gate, so to speak, the team fell apart. And then the plans fell apart. They end up in a place they never intended to go, and their God shows up. Now, that would be a good message for us right now anyway, because how many people plan 2020 to look like this? Zilch. How many churches had their strategic plan they wrote out last year called Vision, you know, 2020 Vision? <laughs> or something like it. All, all the things that... Uh, they had in mind, which, by the way, is a fine and good thing to do. We plan always and we hold loosely to our plans. But the point is, we're all living in a place where our plans have come unhinged. And some, in some cases, teams have fallen apart because of that. And God there is still at work. And he was in Philippi. And so and the Philippian church remained precious to Paul, uh, partly for that reason. The second reason, though, that, uh, that they were special to him was just their faithfulness to him in their giving. Um, it, he says in 2 Corinthians, when he's writing to the church in Corinth, 
about the churches in Macedonia. In, in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 of 2 Corinthians, he says, we want, you to, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Okay, in their uh, extreme poverty, they have overflowed with generosity. So, so as he ministered and as he had need, they helped meet that need, even though it wasn't like they had the means really to do so. Um, persecuted and poor, and yet they were with him all the while. So they are beloved to Paul, beloved to him, because they, uh, he is reminded, every time he thinks of them, he is reminded of their faithfulness to him. And then they themselves serve as a living reminder of God's faithfulness to him. You see, all of that is wrapped up in who they are, his affection for him, and what he says to, the, to them um, here. And so his prayer for them, um, as this people that he loves, um, as a people who he has maybe much more fond and encouraging things to say than he did like to the Galatians when he opened that letter, um, or even to the Corinthians, where there's waywardness and division and that kind of thing, even to this affectionate church. He's got a prayer of thanksgiving and petition that offers a model for how we can pray for one another. And so I just want to unpack that briefly this morning. Um, sort of as the text unpacks it here, we see first a thanksgiving and then petition. And so in the first few verses there, you see this prayer of thanksgiving that's a model for us. And the, and the, and the word of thanksgiving is, is for uh, their, their continuing as partners in the gospel. The prayer then that we can pray for, other, for one another, the, the, the title of the message again is how we can pray for ourselves and others. Um, or whatever I said the title of the message is. But how we can pray for, for one another is uh, we, can, we can give thanks for the privilege of continuing to partner in the gospel. Uh, emphasis on the word continuing. Because it says in verse 5 that they were partners uh, from the first day until now. They, they were and they still are. Verse 7 says, uh, you are all partakers of me with grace, not that you were once upon a time. This is one of the things that, that uh, keeps him so affectionately connected, uh, bonded with the Philippians, is they continue to be partners in the gospel. What they had done in the past to advance the gospel, they're continuing to do. I already ref referenced that passage in 2 Corinthians about the faithfulness and generosity, the model of generosity the Macedonian churches were. But later in this letter, he mentions how the Philippians specifically had supported him. The, the, the reference in 2 Corinthians actually is about specifically a collection that was being taken for the saints in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem um, experienced particularly difficult persecution. It was, a, it was an especially hostile place to be a Christian. And the churches abroad took up a collection um, to send some relief 
to Jerusalem. But, but Paul says they, they helped him personally and specifically. In Philippians 4, 15 and 16, he says, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Thessalonica was really almost a neighboring city, another city up there in Macedonia. So I am, I am thankful to be able to say that Myrtle Grove is a church that has made it a priority to partner in the gospel with so many missionaries and ministries around the world and even locally. Um, this church has birthed a number of good gospel works right here in our community. Um, our church has sent missionaries. Uh, we have planted churches and we continue to go in partnership with those missionaries and we continue to su support uh, many of them. And so I, I know there are people who could write our church and who do write our church with the same kind of sincere thanks that Paul expresses to the Philippians right now. Thank you. Thank you for being partners in the gospel. And I thank you as your pastor for being uh, people who are just faithful in their partnership in the gospel. Faithful in your part. And you know, even having said that, we might still ask the question, are you now continuing in that partnership in the gospel? The reason that's, I say, particularly relevant is because in 2020, we've pressed pause on a lot of things for a long time. And um, it's easy for a, a lot of the things that maybe have been priorities uh, for us and have had our attention captivated or whatever, to sort of lose focus or lose our attention because we have some distance from each other and just because, you know, uh, over time we just get a little forgetful or whatever. But we've been on pause. The gospel work is not on pause. In fact, it's right in, at center stage right now. The need for good news um, is as uh, important and timely and significant as ever it has been. Uh, so are you continuing as a partner in the gospel, in your prayers, in your giving, and, and in your service? That would be a takeaway question from that. So that's the first part of his prayer is thanksgiving. And then there's this threefold petition. And this would maybe be even more instructive to us into how we can pray for one another. If you can't think of, if you don't know of any specific way to pray for others in the congregation, to pray for any individual in the congregation, to pray for yourself in the congregation, here are three uh, petitions that we can always make for one another. The first is that we would have increasingly abundant love. Look in verse nine, where it says, uh, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. That it may abound more and more. Increasingly, ever increasing abundance of love. So I, I think of this like eating a big family meal at grandma's house and everybody eats and then she says, there's plenty, plenty left. You know, anybody want seconds? And then you serve seconds. And then she comes around with a pot sometimes later and says, 
Hey, there's still some fried chicken left. Anybody want more fried chicken? I hate for it to go to waste. An abundance of fried chicken, right? Ever-increasing abundance. Uh, there's enough to offer seconds and still have more left over. Well, that's, that's sort of the measure of love that we want to have as Christians, or really that we're urged to have, that Paul prayed that the Philippians would have. That we have so much love overflowing in us, we've got enough to serve seconds to everyone and to still have leftovers. So how are you doing in that area right now? Uh, because there's a lot of unloveliness going on, and we are perpetrators of it in some cases. How are you doing in the love category with your uh, love abundance? Are you starting to run short on that in any ways? Do you have an increasing abundance of love? Or are you having to ration it? Or you just assume some people are allergic to love and they don't really need to be served any of it anyway. But that's a prayer we can always pray for each other, that we would have an increasingly abundant love for others. The second petition there in verse 10 is that we would grow in knowledge and discernment. Uh, he says uh, that, that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. L love and knowledge belong together in the life of a Christian. Um, they don't really work effectively by themselves. This is a little bit like, there's probably lots of metaphors or illustrations you could use here. I think of uh, two-part epoxy because I've worked with epoxy some. Uh, but if you see it, like epoxy is used on tabletops sometimes. It's real popular right now in that way. Or people will make these, um, the, these tables with like a live edge slab of wood, you know, and these kind of things and pour epoxy in it. It's used as an adhesive and that kind of thing. But it's a two-part epoxy. There's resin and hardener, and they have to be mixed together in order for it to be effective. It doesn't work apart from that. It would just make a mess, uh, either one of them by themselves. So we need love and knowledge to actually work in combination and in the right combination. See, epoxy is one of those things. I've seen some that's a one-to-one -one ratio. Uh, I've worked with some that's a two-to-one resin to hardener ratio and some that's even five-to-one. There are different combinations of those uh, uh, mixtures that are needed in, in a different, with different products, I suppose you would say. But the analogy would, would hold here to say uh, perhaps certain relationships or certain circumstances would dictate we need more love than we do knowledge at the moment, or maybe more knowledge than love uh, at the moment, because maybe the truth seems, um, feels a little bit unloving at the time. But hopefully you understand uh, the point there is that we, we often get them out of balance. That even when we do mix them, we don't have the right combination. We have a lot of knowledge, but not enough love, or we have a lot of love without knowledge and discernment. And one of the a sort of vivid examples that comes to mind in that way would be how Christians have dealt with the uh, issues of, of sexuality and gender right now. I mentioned that one not because it is, is of such central importance in uh, the Christian faith necessarily, but it's so central in our kind of cultural conversation. But on one hand, there's been a lot of unkindness, e even to the point of mockery, 
on the part of Christians who hold to a more traditional biblical view on that issue. And then on the other hand, there are those who recognize the, the, the absence of love <laughs> expressed by the Christian community and sort of fill that gap with love that is uh, maybe short on the knowledge and discernment. So they end up in their attempt to express love um, accepting and affirming beliefs and practices that are, that are out of line with the teachings of the Bible and historic Christianity. Now, again, you could, you, you could sort of pick at that probably and maybe want to <laughs> uh, even on, on either side of that. But the point is to say um, we don't have to think very hard to come up with examples of how we found it difficult as Christians to strike that balance of having an ever-increasing abundance of love with knowledge and all discernment. And it's interesting that he, that he gives it in that order, isn't it? Uh, the, the, the real excessive abundance, the ever-increasing abundance is of love uh, rather than of knowledge. I don't mean to imply any more than, uh, than it, it says there, but uh, the emphasis there is on our love. The third petition uh, there is that our, our conduct would attract people to Jesus, not repel them from him. That our, that our conduct would attract people to Jesus, not repel them from him. That seems like a reasonable <laughs> aspiration that we would have and a prayer we would make uh, for each other. But I get this from verses 10 and 11 kind of in combination with each other. Verse, verses 10 and 11 tell us that the, the aim of our love with knowledge and discernment, that abundant love with knowledge and discernment is aimed at, it says in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. So we ought to approve what is excellent. The NIV says, discern what is best. Okay, um, again, to, to use an illustration here, think of selecting um, a paint that you're, you're going to paint uh, your garden shed or some outdoor project. In other words, and it's got to stand up to the weather conditions. So heat and cold, rain, wind, all the kinds of things that are going to be, is going to be exposed to in outdoor Conditions, And so you may be interested to know if someone has tested different paints to see which ones hold up best in the conditions that your project is going to be exposed to. I would mention, by the way, that when you go to the Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever and you're buying your wood products, you want to be sure to select those that are suitable for outdoor purposes, right? And that, uh, that your paint, that when it says exterior on some cans and interior on the others, that that matters, um, that it's been tested and approved for the purpose. You want to pick the one that is best for that purpose. Well, that's, that's a loose, imperfect analogy here to say uh, that we are to approve what is best. Those things that have, have passed the test, so to speak. But the ultimate goal of that even is so that we'd be pure and blameless, it says. Paul uses this phrase, pure and blameless, repeatedly. I mean, there are a number of times in his letters where he makes reference to that kind of language. But in other places, he uses a different word for blameless. 
it usually uses a word that really means uh, without observable fault. So kind of faultless, so to speak. Here, he uses a word that, that means blameless in the sense of not offending or not causing somebody else to stumble. It still has the day of Jesus Christ uh, in view, but part of our, our blamelessness is how, how our conduct has impacted other people or not impacted them in the sense that it's not caused them to stumble. So we aspire, in other words, we aspire and pray that we might live a morally upright life that's pleasing to God because it gives no cause for others to stumble or be offended. It is important to say, I think, uh, as sort of a footnote, um, people don't believe in God because there's unbelief in our heart. It's part of, uh, from the fall, it's part of human nature. And, and Romans 1 says, God's revealed enough of himself that men are without excuse. Uh, people's unbelief is their unbelief. They have to own it. It belongs to them. Um, we don't bear all the responsibility for that, in other words. And yet, <laughs> we're, we're urged uh, to give people no reason for accusation. And even if they do accuse, it's just unfounded. It's ungrounded. And that surely that we've not given legitimate reason for people to stumble or be offended. It's conduct that attracts people to Jesus rather than repelling them from him. And so let me try to sort of bring this to conclusion um, in this way. Imagine, given the, the sort of frame, uh, framework or context of that prayer, imagine there was a job opening for Christian ambassador. Okay, so you're going to, the, the job is to, uh, is to represent Christ in the community and to represent him well. So you look at the job posting and it says that the ideal candidate has increasingly abundant love for other people, has a solid knowledge of Christian truth and discerns how to act upon that knowledge and lives a morally upright life that does not cause people to stumble. How ready would you be to submit an application for that job? Uh, would your family encourage you to apply? <laughs> sometimes family, I don't know. They're, sometimes they're the worst ones to ask and the best ones to ask. <laughs> they have a unique perspective, don't they? But would they say, ooh, you're a perfect fit for that? Or, um, mm, dad, mm, that's not really you. It said loving. Love it. Uh, yeah, I'm saying that a little bit uh, in jest, but it's, it, this is intended to really cause some reflection here. You know, what would others say? And in fact, in employment interviews, uh, I have always liked to ask a question that gets at um, how would others describe you? And so I might ask, how would, how would your coworkers describe you? How would a former manager describe you? When I interviewed school teachers, uh, for a lot of years, I would often ask, if I, could, if I could just talk with a group of your students for a few minutes and say, tell me about Mrs. Jones, what would they tell me? Because, you know, students are honest. <laughs> kids are honest. What would, what would those honest kids tell me, Mrs. Jones? 
I usually get an honest answer out of Mrs. Jones as an interviewee as well. But the point is, if we were, if we were interviewing for this uh, position as Christian ambassador, and the interviewer were going to call our references and ask them about us, what would that conversation sound like when they said, um, is he, would you say he's a loving person? Would you describe him as a loving person? Um, we're looking for somebody with really abundant love. Somebody also with knowledge, you know, and, and all discernment. Oh, knowledge, yeah, he's full of it. Uh, full, full of knowledge, that is. Full of it, too, probably sometimes, but eh, I'm not sure about, I don't know if I'd describe him as loving necessarily. I mean, what, what, would, what would that conversation sound like if, if somebody really asked our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, people that we are in contact with, is that, is that one of the ways that they would describe us? And if the interviewer said, do you recommend this person for the position? Or should we expand our search to include other candidates? Uh, what would they say? Now, I'll say that on one level, all of us ought to want the position of Christian ambassador because that comes with being Christian. When we said yes to Jesus, we said yes to being a representative of him in the world. That is part of what we're called to when we're called out of darkness and into light. Uh, few of us, I think we would say, would consider ourselves fully qualified for the position. And so we can pray for ourselves and for one another that God would help us become better suited for that position. Maybe we've filled out the application online and we've just saved it in draft form yet. We haven't clicked the submit button and we want to ask God, Lord, I want this. I want to be a representative of Jesus in this world. And I want to have what it takes to be that faithfully. Lord, would you make me more and more loving? Would you give me a deeper knowledge and discernment? And would you fill me with just an attractive fruit that comes from Christ in me? Would you do that, Lord? And I thank you for the privilege of partnering in the gospel with others who have been called to the same task. Well, that's one general way that we can always pray for one another. We can always pray for ourselves. And I'll tell you this, if you can't think of anybody else to pray for, you can always pray for me. They'll never, your prayers for me are never wasted. And you can pray those very same things for me. And they will, they will never fall flat. They will always hit their target. Uh, that's how we can pray for one another. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we, we do thank you for your word as always. And uh, thank you, God, for just the cause for rejoicing that we have in being partners in the gospel with so many people as a fellowship. I do thank you for the faithfulness of uh, the flock here at Myrtle Grove. And that that continues even to this day in so many ways. I thank you for the love of this fellowship. That is one of the things that people so often comment about um, in coming into Myrtle Grove for the first time is what a loving congregation it is. And even when they thought they'd be here one time and wouldn't come back, the love kept them here. Thank you that that's true. Would you make it more and more true 
abundantly in us, especially in this season, where it is so needed and so much harder to come by. Uh, God, would you deepen our knowledge of the truth that we would walk in and discern what is best even as we uh, endeavor to love one another more and more and to love unbelievers more and more and fill us, God, with such fruit of righteousness of Christ in us that we would live lives that attract people to Jesus. We ask you to do that work in us. In Christ's name, amen.